Welcome to the sermon podcast of Damascus Road Church. For more information about Damascus Road Church, go to damascusroadonline.com. Kind of out of nowhere, it seems, this woman bursts onto the scene and she falls at Jesus' feet, which is kind of, is, is really awkward because Jesus is lying down and all of a sudden there's a woman at his feet and she's... Uh, she takes her hair down, which was um, a sultry move. Uh, it would be seen that way. So she's described as a woman, uh, a sinful woman. Some translations call her a harlot. Uh, so this is a woman who has a reputation, and um, she knows it, and they know it. She falls at Jesus' feet. She's sobbing. She's sobbing so much that his feet are getting wet. And she's washing his feet with her tears. And then she takes her hair down, which was this like shocking move uh, to the men in the room. And she starts to kind of dry his feet with her hair. And then she takes this vial from her neck, this little alabaster vial, and she opens it up and it contains expensive perfume. And some people say that this is like a year's wage. And she starts to anoint Jesus' feet with this perfume in this uh, crazy picture of confession and sorrow and disgrace and humiliation and shame, but also safety. Because what happens next is there's two reactions. There's the reaction of Simon, the host, who says, what just happened to my dinner party? This was a nice setting and now it feels all kinds of awkward. And this woman I would never, I'm embarrassed that she came in. I would never invite a woman like her. And if Jesus knew what, like he might be a visitor in our area. If she knew her reputation, he would never allow her to touch him the way she is. I can't believe her. And I can't believe Jesus, says Simon, thinks Simon. And Jesus has this prophetic moment where he looks at Simon and he tells a story, and he looks at the woman, and he actually offers grace. Instead of condemnation, instead of heaping the shame up, instead of blaming her and saying, ah, don't touch me, grossy. <laughs> Which I think is from the Greek. Um, he actually looks at her, and he speaks words of forgiveness to her. He speaks words of uh, reconciliation and redemption to her. And Jesus responds this way, I think, uh, because he's giving us a picture of the Father's heart. He's giving us a picture of what God's heart is like. So Jesus says, I didn't come to save uh, the healthy. I I came to bring healing to the sick. And what he's getting at is not like, uh, Simon, you're really healthy. He's saying, I didn't come, I didn't come to uh, heal people who think they're healthy, but they're really not. Because you're just pretending. You're just posturing. You're just faking. I came to help people who recognize they're sick and, and don't want to stay there. 
Now, if you think you're healthy and you're really not, and you come to terms with that and you recognize your sickness, then you're exactly the person that Jesus came to save, that you're exactly who Jesus came to. But until you get to that point, like he'll continue to reach out, but he's going to go to people who recognize they are not well. So this is a picture of shame and disgrace and safety. Somehow this woman is able to fall at his feet and uh, not get run out of the room by Jesus. We started a few weeks ago this series called Growing in Grace, and it's a series through spiritual disciplines. So we talked about prayer, and then last week we talked about silence and solitude. And uh, the disciplines can be looked at as a checklist to say, if I want to be really super spiritual, I just need to do prayer, and I need to do some silence, and I need to do solitude, and then I'll be spiritual. And we're just trying to kind of wipe that thinking out, that the spiritual disciplines are gifts to us. Uh, some people have called them the means of grace, that God would say, I want to pour more and more grace on you. And so I want to give you this gift of prayer that we could actually spend time with the Father. Not just telling him what we want and making requests, though he invites us to make requests, and not just saying, I need to obey you and do my duty and then you'll bless me in life. But our goal is to be, have a life with God. And so prayer is a gift that we could actually commune with him, not just communicate with him. Silence and solitude is this way that we could block out the noise, the external noise, but also the internal noise that we could say, I I want to get quiet. Rather than just always talking at God, I want to create a space where God could actually speak to me, that he could say things that I can't hear in the loud. Because sometimes God shows up in loud and booming ways, and sometimes he speaks in the quiet. And I want to give him a chance to speak in the quiet. And so we pursue silence and solitude so that we can have more of God and be with God in greater and deeper ways. Today we're going to talk about confession. And confession is not a fun thing to talk about because confession starts in sorrow when we get it right. Confession starts with shame, and confession starts with guilt, where we have to take an account and say, I am not healthy. Maybe I thought I was healthy. Maybe I thought I had these things going on, and maybe everyone else looks at me and sees that I'm healthy. But I, I have to confess that I'm not healthy. I have to confess that there's stuff going on in me that is not good, that is not of life, but it would be of death. That's where confession starts. Richard Foster says this. He says, confession is a difficult discipline for us because we all too often view the believing community, that's us, as a fellowship of saints before we see it as a fellowship of sinners. We feel that everyone else has advanced so far into holiness that we are isolated and alone in our sin. We cannot bear to reveal our failures and shortcomings to others. We imagine that we are the only ones who have not stepped onto the high road of heaven. Therefore, we hide ourselves from one another, and we live in veiled lies and hypocrisy. It's like we can look at other people, and we get this image of perfection in them to say, they have it all put together. And if they really knew me, They'd be disgusted. They'd have the same kind of reaction that Simon had of the woman. 
that they would not want to be with me, that they would cringe at my confession. Like, you struggle with that? Ah, I'm not okay anymore. I think we need to, like, not talk to each other. And confession starts right there. John Ortberg wrote a book um, called Everybody's Normal Until You Get to Know Them. (laughs) Which is like a leveling of the playing field. When we can look around and say, you're screwed up, and you're screwed up, and you're screwed up, and by the way, I'm screwed up too. It shouldn't surprise us that we have things to confess. It should surprise us when people don't have things to confess. So I've, I've, I've heard about you know, groups that will meet and say, what's your weird thing? And like, what's your deal? And people will go around and share, but here's, here's kind of what I struggle with. Actually, Celebrate Recovery is built on a system of being able to own where you're at and saying, this is who I am. I'm not proud of it, but I'm going to own it, and I'm going to be honest with it, and I'm going to share it. Celebrate Recovery, that whole community has something that, like, if we're not in Celebrate Recovery, we should learn from. Because it doesn't just have to happen there. It's a place of confession to say, I struggle. And it's not just for the weirdos. But if we're going to sit around in a, it, for real, people think that sometimes. I couldn't go to counseling or I couldn't confess to that because then I, people would see me as a fake. Well, maybe you are right now. And that's okay too. Okay, so uh, people will sit around and talk about their stuff and get to somebody and be like, I don't know, I don't really have anything. I, I don't have a weird thing. And I'm like, well, that's your weird thing. Because you don't think you have a weird thing. That's weird. Like everybody has things to confess. Everybody has sickness in us that when we're honest, we would say it is not well. And when we understand that confession is a gift, rather than a vehicle to heap up shame and condemnation, confession is a gift because it comes from the heart of God. Jesus went to the cross not to condemn us, but to save us. Jesus went to the cross because like, he came off of his throne not to say, uh, you're guilty and you're guilty and you're guilty and you're guilty but to extend an offer of freedom, extend an invitation that say, I, I want to bring the dead back to life. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, like God made Jesus who knew no sin to become sin for us. So your sin and your confession is already paid for. And if you come to a place in life where you would say, I want to submit to Christ. I want to stop living life as my own master. And I want to... I want to bow before Jesus. I want, to, I want to find my life in him. You receive his spirit. And you're able to stand in front of the Father without judgment and without condemnation. And the sin that we continue to live in, we have a gift and an opportunity to say, I want to continue to put that off. I want to continue to, to strip off that old, ugly, dead life. And I want to run toward Jesus. with. Jesus. And confession is this coming to terms with, God, you already know this. I need to deal with it, and I need to say it. 
1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. James 5, 16 says, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. There's a healing component in confession. And there's also like two different things. Through what Christ did on the cross, he steps in as our mediator between us and God. And we can go straight to God. We have an avenue straight to God. And he invites us to go to him in confession. That in the quietness and private of our heart, we can confess directly to God. We don't need a human mediator. Jesus is our mediator. But so James says, confess to one another. So there's a both and component to say, when I confess to God and keep it private, there's this chance that I can clutch because nobody else knows. But when I humiliate myself and share what I've been grasping with somebody else, I give them the freedom to speak into my life. I come out of the shadows and now I have a community around me who knows me, who won't run from me and who will help me and pray for me. And so confession is both like a vertical movement and a horizontal movement that we would go directly to God with others around us. What does confession look like? We're going to talk about three things that confession looks like, and then we're going to go back to the story to to look at how Jesus and Simon and the woman are doing these things or not doing these three things. If you want to do confession right, you need to start with examination. You need to look inside and say, I want to know my sin. Now, sometimes that's not hard. Sometimes you know exactly what your sin is. Sometimes you know exactly what the problem is. And confession is just a coming to terms with it, to writing it down, to identifying it, to say, okay, I'm, I'm going to say it. I struggle with this. And that's good. It's good to identify it. Sometimes we don't see it. Sometimes there is a need for us to say, I know that I need to confess, but I think I'm pretty good right now. And I, but I want to examine who I am. Sometimes in Psalm 51, 3, it says, I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. But sometimes it's more like our prayer needs to become more like Psalm 139, where David starts out and he says, Oh Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying downward and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. And then he finishes his prayer with, search me, O God. Know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there is any grievous way in me. And in that prayer, we invite God to speak to us, to say, I I know you think things are all right. Will you give me an opportunity to tell you that things are not? And so prayer and silence and solitude and confession, these disciplines start to overlap. And in the quiet, sometimes God will speak to us to say, I need you to hear this. Sometimes we have moments where somebody will challenge us and it's like we're going down the path of life and somebody challenges us and everything in us wants to just keep going on and ignore what has been said. But if we are brave and if we are courageous, we will take the time to circle around and start to identify it and say, yes, that's true. Yes, I'm not okay. 
yes, this is, this is a painful part of who I am right now. I don't like it. When, I am, when God challenges me, sometimes directly, sometimes through people, usually my first response is a, a defense. Is, no, I'm good. No, I'm going to block that. No, I, I don't want to be humiliated right now. I don't want to be embarrassed. I want to be put together. I want to be healthy. And I'm thankful that God is a pursuing God, that he doesn't quit at, no, nah, I'm good, that he continues to knock, and he continues to say, I want to give you a gift. I want to take this burden off your shoulders, and I want you to come to terms with this part of your life that needs to get confessed right now because it's not good. This is not a one and done kind of thing. It's an ongoing confession. So sometimes we know it. Sometimes we search ourselves. Sometimes we give God permission to examine us and speak to it. And sometimes it's others. There's this fantastic verse uh, at the end of Samuel's life in the Old Testament. Samuel um, is a priest. He's a prophet. He's um, leading the country before the kings had arrived on the scene. And Samuel, at the end of his ministry, actually stands up and he has this really brave statement. He stands up in front of the congregation, in front of the family, in front of um, the family of God, and he says, here I am. Like, I'm, like, I'm right here. Testify against me before the Lord and before his anointed. Like, whose ox have I taken? Or whose donkey have I taken? Or whom have I defrauded? Whom have I oppressed? Or whose hand have I taken a bribe to blind my eyes with it? So I think you get both the, he's saying, he's asking these questions. These are somewhat rhetorical because he'd say, I didn't do any of those things. But then you see in his next statement, he says, testify against me and I'll restore it to you. Like. If I have offended you, please tell me. If I have hurt you, if I have sinned against you, please tell me, he says. Because I want, I want to restore this to you. I don't want to live in a sin-divided kind of life when it's my sin and I'm even unaware of it. Would you give me the gift of telling me how I sinned against you? So that I can confess it. So that I can make it right. Examination requires humility. On my part, I have to drop my defenses and get ready for some blows. Sometimes I know it. Sometimes I have to search my heart. Sometimes I ask God. Sometimes I get brave enough to ask others, do you see sin in me? Because I'm not okay with that. I I want to hear it. When we hear it, it's good for us to get as specific as possible. I don't just have sin in general. I have sin specific. I hurt you in this way by doing this. And I want to I get as clear as possible with what I did in that. We're humble and we don't deflect, but we own it. I did this. That's the first step, examination. The second step, if we want to follow through in a godly kind of confession path, is to say, um, well, I'm just trying to be authentic, so deal with it. <laughs> no, not really. The second step after examination is sorrow. 
that I would feel sorrow if I have sinned, when I have sinned, I, and it's brought to light, I would feel sorrow for it. 2 Corinthians 7.10 says, Godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. You want to talk about salvation or confession being a gift. Say, there is a godly kind of sorrow that when you feel it, it leads you on the path to life. It's like getting treatment for a sickness that tastes gross, but actually helps you toward health. Like godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. So there's a, there's a worldly kind of grief that sometimes grieves being caught or grieves that they found out or grieves uh, in a way that doesn't change me. Godly sorrow is this, I did it. And I hate what happened because of that. In me and in my relationships and between me and God, sin brings death. Sin wreaks havoc, and I feel sorrow for that. David's described in the Old Testament as a man after God's own heart, not because he lived the perfect life, and not because he lived even, in some ways, an exemplary life. David was a messy dude. But David's prayer, David's prayer, when he recognized his sin, when he recognized grievous sin in his life, in Psalm 51, David prayers, Oh, give me back my joy again. You have broken me. Now let me rejoice. And you can see in him a kind of pain that says, I'm broken by my sin. And God, even that brokenness can be a gift. Because as long as we don't feel the sorrow, we can keep on going as if everything is just fine. When God starts to put some pressure on, he breaks us in a way that can lead to life. It's like if you break your bone and it heals wrong, what does the doctor have to do? He doesn't look away and say, well, deal with it. It's like, you're going to go through some more pain so that you can come to health again, right? And this is going to hurt you and you are not going to like it. But I want you to be healthy. And this is the gift of confession. So we examine ourselves. We ask God to... uh, to speak into us, to examine us. We even give other people permission to speak into us. Then we feel the weight, we feel the sorrow of our sin. And uh, the last of the dance in in our action is uh, a determination not to sin. That we we would change our mind. The word repentance um, has this idea of, well, like we turn around. Or it can also have this literally meaning, I'm going to change my mind. So what I have been pursuing in my mind and in my action, I'm going to, I'm going to turn from that. I don't want to go down that road anymore. There is, there is a way to examine my heart and feel the sorrow and say, I'm so sorry, but I'm going to do it again. And, and we cut confession short. Confession is not just honesty. Confession is examination and sorrow and then a determination not to sin 
Will you fail again? Probably. We do. That's how we are. We don't ever really get it right. But we can live in greater and greater freedom and greater and greater victory in Christ. And we can leave sin behind us. But if we fall into it again, we just repeat the process. Peter asks Jesus, or actually the Peter who was close to Jesus asked Jesus one time, how many times should I forgive? And Jesus' answer is basically, as many times as they need it. As many times as they sin against you and ask for forgiveness, you forgive them. This is not to say, just stay in an abusive relationship because you need to forgive because Jesus told you to. Like sin also has consequences. There can be freedom and memory at the same time. There can be forgiveness and I'm not going to trust again right now. I'm not going to put myself in that position. You can do that together. Okay, but Jesus says, I want you to walk this road of examination and sorrow and then this determination not to do it again. Peter preaches in his first sermon ever in Acts 2. He gets up and he's looking at a Jewish crowd, a largely Jewish crowd, and uh, he's talking to the people who were God's people of the day. And he said, you killed Jesus. You were calling out his name to be crucified. You did it. And Peter's not dodging, saying, I didn't do it. He had his role in it. But he's, he's uh, bringing them news. And they say, so what do we need to do? And he says, repent. Change your mind. Turn around. Don't live, don't live your life anymore in a way that is opposed to Jesus. Live in a way that is with him. Turn around. So we examine... We feel sorrow, and and then we have this determination not to. And then the fourth is a passive. Receive forgiveness. Because confession isn't just condemnation. That's not the point. It's like, yeah, I know it. I feel really bad about it. I don't want to do it again, but I'm going to walk around with this albatross around my neck for the rest of my life because I'm just ugly. This is how Simon looks at the woman. And when we walk through this, the Bible says he is faithful to forgive us. The Bible says, like, as far as the east is from the west, that's how far he separated our sin from us. So confession is a gift. And when I walk through this process with God and with others, freedom and forgiveness are on the other side. We confess privately, and we confess with people. So let's take a look. Um, we'll, read, we'll read this story, and we'll go into greater depth, and then we'll take a look at um, how is Jesus behaving, and how is Simon behaving, and how is the woman behaving, and what can we learn from that? In Luke 7, verse 36, it says, One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and took his place at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner... When she learned that he was reclining at the table in Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is and who's touching him 
She's a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. A certain money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. And then when they could not pay, he canceled the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet, but she's wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she's not ceased to kiss my feet and you did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. She loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. And those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. So there's all kinds of things I think going on in the story, but I think one of the beautiful things is we get a picture of confession. We get a woman who has clearly examined herself, who has felt the deep sorrow of her sin and throws herself at the feet of Jesus saying, I don't want to be like that anymore. I don't want to live that way. And I have so much shame and I have so much disgrace that I can't even get the words out right now. I'm just going to weep. And there's this other component that's going on where she knows who Jesus is. And I think she's coming to terms with what he's about to do. And she's blessing him. So this is a picture of confession. It's also an anti-example of confession because Simon is sitting at the table. And Simon starts to heap condemnation and judgment both on her and on Jesus. And Jesus turns to him and uh, if you notice, in the whole story up until that point, is like the Pharisee had invited him. He's at the Pharisee's house. He's uh, eating with the Pharisees. And in the moment, he looks to him and he says what? He just calls his name. Simon. It's like, let's drop the show. I'm going to call you to man up. I'm just going to call you by who you are. Not by your trophies. Not by your accomplishments. I'm just going to speak straight to you. Simon. You have failed. In our culture, hospitality is a thing, Jesus would tell him. And he, he knows, says, when people travel, all we, all we have are sandals, like little straps of leather, and our feet get dusty and dirty. And hospitality requires when you have a guest come into your home that you have their feet washed. You either do it or a servant would come and wash their feet. You kiss them with a, uh, a, a greeting kiss. We don't do that here as much. You go to Paris and then it's not like a weird deal. It's like, I'm, I'm going to give you a greeting of honor. You anointed my head with oil. Um, this, this is kind of a traveling all day in the hot sun. People have an odor. Your feet smell, you smell. And this anointing was a, let me refresh you. Let me 
put some oil on your head or on your feet and let me freshen you up because you've been traveling a while. This was a good host. And Jesus looks at Simon. He says, Simon, you didn't do any of these things. And hospitality is like rule number one. So if you're looking at her, you're missing what's going on in you. This happens to us all the time. We look at other people and we're very, we're very able to see their sin. Because usually their sin is different from our sin. And Jesus says, Simon, you're sick. Like you have a sickness in you that you, aren't, you are not healthy. And yet you think you are. And from the time that she came in, she's washed my feet in a humiliating way. Not just having the servant pour some water and, okay, we're good, we're good. This is a, I'm, I'm going to humiliate and disgrace myself. And she hasn't stopped. She hasn't stopped kissing me. And she's anointed me with oil. And, it, and the whole room now can smell of it. The whole room smells good because of what this woman has done. And Jesus says, I love what she's doing. And Simon, I wish you could learn from this. Jesus talks about the Pharisees, and Simon would be included when he says, you people honor me with your lips, but your hearts are far from me. When we don't go through examination and sorrow, and then this determination to turn around, we can say all the right answers, have a heart that is far from God and far from people, and we isolate ourselves in our own sin. But Jesus also gives us another picture. So we see the woman and we see the man, we see Simon uh, giving us an illustration of confession, an anti-illustration of confession, and we see what it looks like um, to receive a confession. Jesus doesn't flinch. He's not like, ah, okay, I wish you hadn't said that. Like, oh, I feel really uncomfortable now. I don't know what to say to you. Jesus, Jesus basically gives her permission to keep going. He's quiet. And he can listen. And he, if you have something to pour out, keep going. I'm not going to cut you short. I'm not going to make you feel worse about it. I want to be a safe person for whom you can uh, share. Jesus is not light on sin. Like, Jesus doesn't look at sin and be like, that's no big deal. Like, you're forgiven. Go ahead. Jesus died for sin, for my sin, and for your sin, and for this woman's sin, and for Simon's sin. Jesus died. He looked at it so intensely, and he took it so seriously that he said, we, like, we need to take sin head on, and you are not able you are not able to take care of your sin. So I will in your place. But from that, it's not as if God is uh, kind of like hands out forgiveness in a stingy kind of way. Say, so, yeah, Jesus died for you. That's so gross. How could you do that to him again and again and again? Jesus died for you and you have an offer to be free. You have an invitation to receive forgiveness. Confession is a gift. That's why we could say confession starts in sorrow and actually ends in celebration. That we don't have to walk away from a confession with our head down. Jesus picks her head up. He says, your faith has healed you. Healed you. Not just 
ah, okay, you're good, but healed you. Confession offers us a path to redemption. Again, man, celebrate recovery. Get it. That we would celebrate the redemption that God offers us. That we would invite that into our lives. So how can you do that? How can we do it? Like you take a look this week and examine your heart. Examine your life. Give God permission to say things to you. You maybe go to somebody in your life who you trust, who you have a relationship with, who even maybe who would be safe for you, not in a dumbing down sin kind of way, but in a safe, like, I want to speak truth, but I love you and I care about you kind of way. You ask them, what do you see in me? Do I need correction? Do I need to confess anything? Examine yourself. And if you get it, don't, don't shortcut the sorrow. Feel it. Call it what it is. And then change your mind. This is both a, God, would you change my mind? And a, I am in it. It's not just, I'm going to wait for you, God, to change my mind. And would you please, because I'm stuck in my sin, and I really want you to change my mind, we recognize I can't change without him. But I'm also not going to be passive about it. I'm going to pursue it. So God, will you change my mind, and will you show me what I need to do to be a part of it? Because I want this change. If you've hurt someone, if in your examination you recognize that you have sinned against someone, I think part of the confession process is going to them. To say, I hurt you. I don't like it. I, I'm sorry that I did it. And not just, I'm sorry that you felt by my actions. Confession is, I'm sorry I did this. There can be all kinds of pieces in play. My confession is me owning my stuff. So if I hurt you, I go to you, and I, I confess, and I display the sorrow, and I communicate the desire to leave that behind and to do things differently, and I ask for forgiveness. And if they grant it, what a gift. And if they're not ready, you have done as much as you can. And I think you can be forgiven under God forgiven by God for sins in your life, even if people withhold forgiveness from you. If they give it to you, that's an, another gift. You deal with God and you deal with people. So right now, uh, before the worship team comes back up, I'd love it. We've done this uh, in each of the weeks in this Growing in Grace series. If we could take some time just to experience this discipline. That... Uh, we spent some time praying. We spent some time in the quiet. And I'm going to call you to a minute of quiet that we would start by examining ourselves in the quiet. See if you can work through this three-step dance of examination and if you find something, sorrow. And if you, find, if you feel the sorrow, then moving to the determination, the repentance. I did this and I'm sorry and I won't do it again. 
this uh, quote, and then we'll um, and then we'll go for a minute. The discipline of confession brings to an end pretense. God is calling us into being a church that can openly confess its frail humanity and know the forgiving and empowering graces of Christ. Honesty leads to confession, and confession leads to change. May God give grace to the church once again to recover the discipline of confession. Let's pray and take a minute. God, we pray like David, that you would search us. That you would speak to us in the quiet about things that are not right in us. Places where we are still holding on to sin. Ways that we have hurt ourselves or hurt others or hurt you. Would you make those known to us? Would you give us a sorrow that leads to life? We could leave that behind and rest in who you are and your gift of confession. We love you, Jesus. Would you fill this silence now?